Amen. Good morning. Uh, before we get started this morning, I just want to make you aware of something that is available in the lobby. This is the book that I wrote from the dissertation uh, research that I did. It's called Enduring Ministry. It is available in the lobby now. You can also get it on pretty much anywhere you can buy a book from online. Um, and you may look at it and go, well, that doesn't really apply to me because it's written from the context of pastors. And that is, is true. It's written from the context of 20 pastors who had been in their churches for 15 years or longer. And what I did was I interviewed them and said, how did you deal with stress over that long period of time? How were you able to overcome the crisis situations? How were you able to stay so long when what the statistics tell us is most pastors only stay at their churches from five to seven years and they move on to another church. So how did you stay here so long? So we had conversations with 20 different pastors. And then what I did was I did what they call content analysis. And I looked for what are the similarities of the responses of all these guys. And then I compiled that to say, here's what we find in guys that experience longevity in ministry. Now, the thing is, it also applies to anybody who ever deals with any kind of stress or conflict, because what it does is it looks like, where does stress come from, and, and how do we deal with it, and how do we protect people from it, how do we protect ourselves from it, how do we benefit from it, and ultimately, how do we put it in its right context? And so, that's what the book does. You would benefit from it. I'm not just saying that, so you buy a copy of it. I'm just saying that it does have benefits beyond just... Uh, being a pastor, it has benefits for anyone who is in any kind of shape or position dealing with stress. Uh, statistics tell us that there are two jobs that rank at the highest point of stress, what they call occupational stress, and those two jobs are nurses and pastors. And so if you're anything close to that, the reason that they do is because a lot of times stress comes from when we are giving to someone that you don't get anything in return for. Now, that's not <laughs> make you feel bad this morning. But um, what, what it is, is a lot of times when people come to see a pastor, they come with problems. They come to say, hey, I'm struggling with this, or I have this issue going on in my life. And, and so you, you pour out. But what happens is a lot of pastors never have anything pouring back into them. So they give and give and give, and they get to the point of emotional exhaustion, and then everything just kind of falls apart from that point. So it's being warned of that and making sure that you don't take that path. But that's true of any of you. I mean, some of you may be um, taking care of aging parents, or you may be dealing with uh, special needs children, or you just may be going through a crisis, and what it's doing is it's calling a lot out of you. You better make sure there's something coming back in, or you're going to get to that point of emotional exhaustion. Um, so anyway, the book is very handy for that. Beyond that, if you don't think it applies to you, you can always grab a copy and give it to a pastor friend of yours or someone who's in ministry or even someone who is in the medical field or anyone who's dealing with uh, any kind of stress in, in ministry. Later on, after um, it's been available for a while, one of the things that we're going to do is try to um, make these available like at pastor's conferences to say, hey, this is some very practical information for you. And so that will happen a little bit later on, uh, just to kind of let you know where we're going to go with that. But anyway, if you do want a copy, they are available in the lobby today. All right, no more shameless plugs this morning. We're going to go ahead and jump into our copy of scripture here. And this is way more important because this is actually, if you get this today, then you'll never have to read this book because you will never get to the point of being so stressed out that you have nothing to give because you're empty. You're going to be at this point of always being filled. Because if you think about it, that's exactly what this is talking about here. It's talking about this idea of... Um, being so filled and understanding the provision of God that it's on this constant basis that you are never wanting for anything. That's really what this represents, and you're going to see how we get there as we move through our passage today. First of all, let's remember everything that God has done to this point. Now, as we've studied uh, Exodus for this long period of time, it's very easy for us to disconnect these stories and not realize these are happening in a very fast sequence. So, you know, even though the 10 words is something we've studied months ago now, that just happened. I mean, they, God just gave that to them. He just invited them up on the mountain, Moses and, and Aaron and Joshua, and they 
came up and they feasted in the Lord's presence up there. And, and now God is giving instructions to Moses about how to build the tabernacle. Uh, again, we want to remind ourselves of the flow of the whole narrative that we see a Jewish wedding ceremony set up in the book of Exodus. And as you go through it, you see every stage of that Jewish wedding ceremony uh, culminating with the vows or the 10 words that we find in Exodus chapter 20. Right after that, you have the reception where they come up on the mountain and they feast. And right after that, you have God coming to live with them. The same kind of sequence we see in any kind of marriage where they come together, they exchange vows, there's a celebration, and then the couple lives together from that point forward. The whole thing is happening here in Exodus as well, which reminds us that God is not a God who wants to be worshiped from afar. He doesn't want to stay up on the mountain and us stay down low, even though if you remember the giving of the 10 words, God warned them, don't come on this mountain or you're going to die. But at the same time, you see this, this juxtaposition of God saying, but I want you on this mountain. I want to be with you. My holiness is so great that your unholiness cannot exist in its presence, but I'm going to do something to mitigate that problem so that we can be together because that's what I long for. And that's the greatest benefit that you will ever have is to benefit from my presence in your life. And I want you to have the full benefit of this relationship. And so that's what we have unfolding for us. So when we get to the building of the tabernacle and all these different specifications that God gives to them about how to build the ark and how to build the mercy seat and all the other things that we'll get to as we move through this, it's with intentionality and it's with love, it's with care, it's with concern that he's giving them these instructions. And everything has this meaning behind it. It's not just a place of worship. As we've talked about in previous weeks, uh, literally this is a, a blueprint, if you will, of the throne room of God in heaven. The writer of Hebrews tells us that and alludes to it. And he talks about how the mercy seat is the throne of God and the Ark of the Covenant is a reminder of God's goodness, his provision, his authority, all of those things that we've talked about as well. And, and, and all of everything that we're going to see moving outward from the Holy of Holies back is going to remind us of God's intentions and it's going to remind us of God's plan for salvation. And as we come to this one, there is not an exception here. I mean, this is a beautiful picture. Now, if you think about it, we've exited out of the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, there only is the Ark of the Covenant, which is the box itself, and then the mercy seat, which is the lid for that box. We've talked about those two things in the previous two weeks. Now, if you think about it, we've come outside that veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, and we're going to begin to talk about the three pieces of furniture that we find there. Okay, And the first one we're going to talk about, if you were to walk into the holy place, we're going to talk about the one that is on the right, and that is the table of showbread. Now, right in front of us is going to be the altar of incense and to the left of us is the lampstand. So we're going to talk about each one of those things for the next couple of weeks to talk about their importance and the symbolic nature, what they represent and how they were used in the worship of God. Okay, so the tabernacle points both to God's fulfillment and it points to a future fulfillment. What I mean by that is the very building of the tabernacle is a reminder of what God has already done. We know this because as God keeps telling them every part of this, or as he begins to talk to Moses on the mountain, or when he tells them to build these things, or to make sure that he has this bread that's available for them, there are always these connections of, because this is what I've done for you. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out with my strong arm. You were slaves, and I've made you free people. I've brought you out to be my people and I'm going to be your God. So the fulfillment of everything that God promised all the way back in Exodus chapter 6, this is a fulfillment of all those promises. He did bring them out. He did provide for them. He is taking care of them. He is becoming their God. They are becoming his people. Okay. But it also points to a future fulfillment because I'm going to say this a couple of times today, and I've said this before, and it's always good to keep this in our mind as we study Scripture, that when you talk about the Bible as a whole, we call it Old Testament and New Testament, and those probably aren't the best terms that we could use, but they're the ones that we're the most familiar with. And, and the best way to understand it is the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. 
Or you could look at it in reverse and say, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. But what you're saying is they're pointing to the same exact things. In other words, salvation in the New Testament is the same exact way salvation is given in the Old Testament. They're not two different ways. Many people misunderstand this. They think, well, in the Old Testament, the way to salvation was by keeping the law. And of course, they couldn't do that. Well, then no one would be saved. How do they experience salvation? No, we find it in Genesis where God said to Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. And then the scripture says very plainly and succinctly, Abraham believed what God said and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's exactly the way it is in the New Testament. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is Savior? Do you believe that he's God? Do you believe he died for your sins? I believe it's counted to you as righteousness. See, salvation in the Old Testament is the same as salvation in the New Testament. So when we study these, we're studying God's fulfillment to promises that he made to his people in the Old Testament, but we're also seeing a pattern of how God is going to fulfill these things for all of us who would come later on, like us today. The same way that God saves them is the same way that God saves us. So we want to keep that in mind as we study each one of these. Um, This is a picture of God's presence with his people, and it's also a picture of the value that they gain from that presence. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 9, uh, it says this, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. Again, this is a reminder that God longs to be with his people and his very presence with his people is going to be a benefit to them. It's gonna be a provision for them. It will multiply them. It will confirm all the promises that he's made to them. It continues on, Leviticus 26, verse 11. It says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. What does that mean? Well, it's somehow God intends to make them holy, to make them righteous, because the only thing that abhors God is unrighteousness and unholiness. So right there, his intentions are to make them holy, to make them presentable, to make them able to exist in the presence of God and in the presence of his holiness. Verse 12, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Again, that idea of walking is reminiscent of the garden when God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the morning before sin ever entered the picture. So somehow what God intends to do is to reverse the curse of sin and all that it has caused and all the detriment that it has caused in our life, especially in our relationship with God. It continues in verse Verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Now again, God reminds them, hey, this is what I've done for you. And I intend to continue this blessing. I'm not just bringing you out of Egypt so that you have this benefit of not being a slave. I'm bringing you out of Egypt so there is a benefit that you will know me. Know the one who saved you. Know the one who cared for you. Know the one who longs to have a relationship with you. So when you see this picture right here, you see God's intentions towards Israel. God had to give Israel these constant reminders because it is our human condition to forget, is it not? How many of y'all ever forget things? Forget lots of things. I forget things all the time. I have a huge problem of forgetting, and I don't know where that comes from. Uh, Maybe it's hereditary. My dad tends to forget things, although he's 82 and I'm not, so I have way less of an excuse. Um, But, uh, you know, we do tend to forget things. We forget where we put things. We forget. But the, the probably the most damaging things that we forget is the things that God's done for us. Uh, God's character. And what happens when we forget those things is we begin to act in ways absent of the presence of God. In other words, we begin to relate to other people or we begin to um, think about relationships, absence of the presence of God. We begin to do things thinking God is nowhere around. Therefore, God's not watching me. God's not seeing this. If we were very aware of the presence of God, I wonder how often it would be a detriment to us in our language and maybe the kind of jokes that we tell, maybe the way that we relate to other people, the way we speak about people when they're not there, but we are very 
aware that God is, maybe it would change the way we think about life as a whole. I guarantee you it would change the way we approach crisis situations in our life. Instead of fearing or worrying, we would have this confident assurance that even though I don't understand these circumstances, somehow God is here. His presence is right here with me. He promised me that. Now, I may not feel it. I may not even be cognizant of it in the sense of, you know, I have to remind myself of it. But that's, that's the whole point. That's why God keeps reminding them. You don't have to be reminded of something that you're aware of. You have to be reminded of something you've forgotten. And so the reason God keeps doing this is because the situations don't attest to the fact that he's there. The situations may even look like he's not there, which is why we have to be reminded he is there. And we build our response to those situations based on the truth of who God is and what he's told us is true. There is importance in paying attention to the detail of the tabernacle. And whenever we see the tabernacle and we study it, there are two things. As I've like looked through other pastors who's taught through this material and Bible studies that have looked at this and even commentaries, it's amazing to see how many people will get to this section and they'll cover like a whole bunch of chapters all at once. And they'll say, God built this tabernacle. This is a place for them to worship. This is kind of blah, blah, blah. And they just kind of move on to the next story. And then there's these other people at the other end of the spectrum who they stop and they'll literally spend like a year talking about just the Ark of the Covenant. And they bring so much significance to it. And it's this and it's that. And the reason it's made out of gold and wood is because the two dimensions of it point to this. And I think that right there, there's two things that we need to be careful of. The first one is this. We have to be careful to not make the mistake of not applying enough meaning to this. In other words, just to assume this is like God building something because, you know, they needed something among them for the sacrifices and to go through the rituals and the ceremonies, and this was just kind of what God constructed, is to miss this deep significance of what these things represent. But there's another error that we make, and I think that is applying too much to it. In other words, you can find whatever you're looking for if you look hard enough, okay? In other words, you could look at patterns that you find here and maybe they mean something, maybe they don't. Um, you can apply meaning going, oh, look, uh, this is made out of wood and this is made out of gold and this is like, this, this speaks to the two dimensions of, of Christ, the wood being his humanity and the gold being his deity. Well, that's great and that's true, not necessarily what's intended from this. Well, so how do you know? Well, the best way to know is to remember this important constant as we study the Word of God. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Is there some other meaning beyond that? Can you derive some perspective from it that may not be explicit in Scripture? Absolutely, you can. But the rule of thumb and the foundation is let Scripture interpret Scripture. And the reason I say that is because even though you may see that there is definitely two natures to Christ, there is his divine nature and his human nature, there's nothing in Scripture that says that the wood and the gold point to that. Okay? So, in other words, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but the scripture is not where we derive that from. So, again, that's just one example of many of making sure that you don't go too far in spending so much time creating symbolism that isn't necessarily that important to understanding the main purpose of these things. So, when we let scripture interpret scripture, it becomes easier to see the significance and the symbolism that we find here in texts, such as the one we've been studying about the tabernacle. So, so when you move beyond that and you keep that perspective in mind, I'm, I'm going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. That brings us back to what I said earlier. We let the New Testament be the revelation of the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews is a great example of that. When you read Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 specifically, it gets into the idea of these uh, ceremonies that they used to go through in the tabernacle and each element of the tabernacle. And he talks about the fulfillment and how Christ is the fulfillment of those things. And we've already talked about that, right? Last week, we talked about the uh, mercy seat and how it's a picture of the, the two cherubim that look over the mercy seat and they're looking down at it. 
And we brought significance to the fact that that is a picture of Christ, the throne room of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is the one who told us that, that he walked in as a greater high priest, that he applied his own blood, not the blood of animals. Um, we see the angels that are looking down on it. And if you go into, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, he's very specific. It may have been the Gospel of John. One of the Gospels, when they talk about the resurrection story, they actually talk, say that when Mary Magdalene went into the tomb, she saw two angels, one at the foot and one at the head. And there is this strong imagery of the mercy seat. And what was laying between where these two angels were was the body of Christ, which was the perfect sacrifice that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So again, Again, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So we need to understand both of them to put these things together. Now, look again at our text here in chapter 25. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Now, I want to say that it's very... Uh, important maybe, maybe not so important, but maybe it's a, it's a good thing to draw our attention to the fact that these are not large pieces of furniture here. Um, most people determine that a cubit is the distance you know, from your elbow to the tip of your fingers there. So when you're talking about this table, the table of showbread, it's about as big as a coffee table that you would have in your house. It's not huge, okay? Uh, look how it continues. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as the holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly." Now, God gives them very specific instructions about how this is to look. Uh, it has a, it, to, to explain it in very simple terms, it's basically like this coffee table that has an edge around it that has almost what would look like a crown, okay? So each little piece would have like this, you know how crowns have those little points all the way around it? It's kind of like it would look like that. Now, what's the purpose of that? Well, part of it maybe speaks to the royalty of what it represents is still inside the tabernacle. Everything inside the tabernacle is gold because it relates to God and God is his presence. Everything outside the tabernacle is bronze and that speaks to man. In other words, everything man has to do before man approaches God. Um, but specifically, it probably has a, a, another function and that is it provides a lip around the whole table so that all the things that are on it don't fall off of it. Probably they are carried in this manner as well. So there's functionality to it physically and there is spiritual connections to it as well. But God gives them, gives them these very specific instructions. And we know uh, a little bit about what it must have looked like. Uh, I don't know how, how many of you have ever heard of the Ark of Titus. Have you ever seen that? If you uh, look at the picture here, I think I have a picture of it. You can see what it looks like. Um, you've seen this before, probably in history books or maybe on the internet. The Ark of Titus is something that was built by the conquest of Titus. Um, one of the things that you see embedded on here are pictures of everything that was in the temple. Because when they went in, they stole everything. They took it out. And so this actually depicts them bringing all of those things out of there when they defeated Jerusalem. And one of the things that you see is a picture of the table of showbread. And we also see like the lampstand. So we see that architecture and why it's relevant to us is it gives us a pretty clear picture of what they look like. Because they literally took these things out so they knew exactly what they looked like. So it does give us a picture of how these things were constructed and, and what they look like specifically uh, in reality, how they were actually built. So the Bible gives this table uh, several different names. In one place, it's called the table. Uh, another place it's just referred to as this table. But there are other passages of scripture outside of Exodus that refer to this table as well. The book of Numbers calls it the table of the presence. The book of Leviticus calls it the pure table. Uh, Second Chronicles calls it the ceremonially clean table. But probably the most 
full description that we get from the table of showbread comes from 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 48. And this is how they describe it. The golden table on which was the bread of the presence. Not the bread of presence, but the bread of the presence. Okay? So that gives us a very clear picture of exactly what this was, what it's made out of, and what it represents or what it was used for. So there were a lot of other items that were found on the table of showbread. So in other words, we read those in the passage there. It wasn't just a coffee table. Go to the picture. I think I have a picture of the table of showbread. It's a very um, uh, kind of cheesy looking picture. You don't have it? Oh, okay. All right, so I don't have a picture of the table of showbread for you. But um, whenever you look at it, it has like these plates that are sitting on top of it, and it has these loaves that are stacked up on each one. One thing the passage talks about is that there are 12 loaves that are baked. So six would sit on one plate, six would sit on another. The 12 represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Therefore, it's a picture of their presence inside the presence of God. This speaks of presence and God's presence with them. Okay, so there's a lot of significance to that. The that are talked about there, the golden pitchers. Those are used for drink offerings. When you get into Leviticus, there's all kinds of offerings that are explained, one of them being a drink offering. And they apparently keep the pitchers inside of the holy place. And whenever they're used, they're taken outside. And that's where you see the mixture or the blending of the holy and the uh, very physical or very uh, human element of what the tabernacle represents when they bring the drink offering and pour it on the actual altar that's outside in the courtyard. And so we're, we see the interaction, I guess you can say, between the divine and the human. Um, anyway, the, all of that is sitting inside and it's sitting right on top of the table of, of showbread there. Now, nothing is said here about how the bread was used. Okay? It doesn't tell us a whole lot here, but we do get pictures of that further on in scripture. In the book of Leviticus, it tells us in chapter 24, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. So that's where we get the idea there were six in one pile, and there was six in another. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. So you have this picture of the bread here with frankincense uh, spread around it. So there's this incense that goes with it as well. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. So we know every Sabbath day, a new batch of bread is brought in, okay? Um, and then it continues on. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So the most significant thing in this was the bread. The bread was more significant than the table itself. Why? Because the table served as this icon, if you will, of what the bread literally represents. So God gives these instructions in Leviticus that they are to bake this bread. It is a gift from the people to God. But notice that God is not the one who eats this bread. The bread is not for God. The bread is for the priest. They're the ones who eat it, not God. And that's an important thing because it's important to understand that this is not like what we see in other traditions, where if you go to the pagan traditions of the Canaanites around them, or even the Egyptians, they also would bring food offerings to their gods, but they would literally put them in front of the gods and they would leave it there and let it spoil. Okay? The gods never ate the things because they're not real gods. But notice here that the food is eaten, but it's not eaten by God. It is a gift, an offering that they present, but it's eaten by the people. The reason that's important is we have to understand this gift was not for God. It was a representation of his presence, which is why it's called the bread of presence. The bread was actually for the priest. Now, this is important. Think about what Paul says about this in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 25. 
Nor, it's talking about God here, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul's making this statement here of we don't give anything to God that he needs. So to give him bread that he needs would somehow say, well, God needs sustenance. We need to give it to him to make him uh, stronger, or we need to give it to him because there's a need that he has for this. And Paul says very clearly, God has no needs outside of himself. So anything we give to him is not needed by him. Instead, what Paul says is he is the reverse of that. He gives to mankind. He is the one who supplies the needs of mankind. We see that with the table of presence as well because God actually gives to the priest from this bread that is brought in. God takes care of himself. God sustains himself. God does not need us. So that brings us to the point of understanding, okay, well, what is then the symbolic nature of these loaves of bread? Well, again, remember, there's 12 loaves representing 12 tribes. Uh, you see the picture there that all 12 tribes have a place at this table. The bread was to be replaced every Sabbath, and this was to happen in perpetuity. In other words, there was no end to it. We read there in the book of Leviticus, this is to happen forever and ever with, with no end to it. So this reminds us of two things. Number one, God was very aware of their needs. Okay? God was very aware of the things that they needed to sustain them, to keep them alive, to keep them strong, to keep them moving through the wilderness, if you will. The second thing is this. God is the one who provided those needs. So number one, he was aware of them. Number two, he's the one who provides for them. Now, this is a reminder of what God's already done. God's already provided bread for them in the wilderness through manna, okay? Manna that comes from heaven. God knew their need. There wasn't anything in the wilderness to sustain them. God provided for their need, miraculously providing bread from heaven, which would, again was a reminder of his presence with them, that he was aware of what they needed and he was going to take care of it. Therefore, when we think about the, the table of presence that holds the bread of presence, that is a strong picture of God saying, I've got you. I've brought you this far. I'm going to take you the rest of the way. Listen to what it says in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 8. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. Okay? So again, it comes from the people of Israel. Where did they get it from? God's provision. So as they give this back, it's a reminder to them of how God gives us everything. And so we recognize him as the giver of all good things by giving back to him, trusting him with these things. And that becomes the sustenance for the priest who are what? The ones that are the mediators between the people and God. And they would literally eat on this throughout the week. So when it's replaced on the Sabbath day, it's not replacing um, 12 full loaves of bread with 12 fresh loaves of bread. It is gone all the way down to where there's probably not anything left and 12 new are brought out every Sabbath day. So it's not like wait till Sabbath day and they have to eat stale bread. It is they eat it throughout the week and God's constantly providing a freshness of bread. There's constantly this provision that keeps coming in. There's constantly something there for the priest to eat because he's taking care of of them. This is also reminiscent of what happened just a couple of chapters back when God invited Moses and Aaron up on the mountain to feast with him. I told you this earlier, and I want to tell you this again because this is so foreign to our concept in our mind, but I just want to keep bringing it up every time we see it in Scripture, and that is we don't tend to think of God as a God of feasting and partying, but that's exactly what Scripture keeps pointing to us that he is a God who loves a feast. He is a God who loves a party. And I'm not talking about like some crazy party, but what I'm talking about is he loves a joyous occasion that's a celebration. And over and over and over again, that's what you see with God from the very beginning, creation. Eat of any tree, 
out there. Just don't eat of this one, but any other one, it's all yours. Eat as much as you want. The whole scripture ends with us gathering around this table at the marriage supper of the lamb. And there's so much food that no one is going to lack. And it's the best of foods. And, And we sit there and we eat and we feast and we celebrate. Jesus was accused of what? eating with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, he's sitting down. What is he celebrating with them? He's celebrating the potential of them changing the direction of their lives, being forgiven of their sins and being restored, which is what the gospel is all about. That's what God's doing here. He intends to eat with sinners. He intends to come down and fellowship with sinners. He knows that. And he wants to make a way for them to be made right in his presence. This is a picture of constant fellowship and how this fellowship is extended to everyone, not just Moses, which is the importance of the representation of the 12 tribes through the 12 loaves of bread. Eating with someone in the ancient world carried incredible significance with it. We've talked about this before, but I just want to kind of bring it back in here. Whenever you sat down and ate with someone in in the ancient world, you have to remember that they didn't have, you know, O'Charlie's or a place that you would go like there was a neutral place to eat. I mean, if you ate with someone, you went to their home. So this built this very strong significance. You would not just invite a stranger over out of the blue. If you did, that showed incredible hospitality. But that was not the norm. Mostly, you invited people over that you knew. You've already met them in the marketplace. You've met them. You've kind of built a relationship with them outside. And now you've grown to the point that you want to invite them in to see where you live and to know your family and to spend time getting to know them more. Okay, So there's intentionality behind eating that we... It's lost among us today, okay? Because like I said before, you know, you'll, you'll have a meeting, a business meeting with someone you don't even know, and you'll say, hey, let's eat for lunch. Well, it doesn't carry that same significance that it did in the ancient world. And the significance is this, that in the ancient world, whenever you invited someone over, you were extending to them not only your hospitality, but your protection. You were saying to them, hey, I got your back. And one of the ways I want you to know that I got your back is I'm bringing you into my house. I'm bringing you into my circle, if you will. And and whenever you shared a meal like that, it brought the significance of not only do I have your back, but I believe you've got my back too. I believe that we have a relationship here, a covenant that's beginning to develop that we mutually understand and benefit from this relationship. Uh, Whenever that is... Uh, treated with disdain, um, it carried this heavy, heavy weight with it, consequences and all. Uh, We talked about before, David felt this whenever he was betrayed by Absalom, but his right-hand man, Ahithophel, was the guy who was advising him, and Ahithophel just turns on David one day, and and he goes and joins uh, David's son to Absalom to to thwart David's plans. And and David writes about this in the Psalms, and and the one thing that he says is, uh, he doesn't name him by name, but we know he's talking about. He's like, you are my right-hand person. You are the one that, and literally he says, you are the one that I broke bread with. And, and that's just like, like an example of how significant it was to share a meal with someone in that ancient context. It literally brought with it this respect and this trust that you have in someone. Now think about God's intentionality of bringing this into the worship of Yahweh, bringing it literally into the tabernacle itself where God is feasting with sinners. Now, Of course, we would be amiss if we don't talk about what this represents even beyond their day and time and bringing it into ours. What we know about scripture is that everything points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. You've heard the pastor probably uh, on YouTube or whatever who goes through the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, and um, he's he's like, here in in Genesis, he's this, and in, in, in Leviticus, he's this, and he'll go through every one of them, and he talks about how Jesus is present in every one of them. And it's so true that all of the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. So if you pay attention and you know Jesus in the New Testament, you begin to see him throughout every one of the aspects of the Old Testament. And, and this same thing is true with the tabernacle. Everything points to Jesus. Jesus himself told us that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Over and over again, he told us these types of things. And just as God provided for his people in the wilderness, 
so in the New Testament, God continues to provide for his people. How? He provides for them by coming and living among them and inviting them to eat with him. Okay? I want to point you to to Revelation where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in. And what does Jesus say he will do? Eat with them in their home. God comes to them and wants to share a meal. That's the same picture that we have here with the tabernacle. God still knows what we need, and God still knows the best provision for that need. He provided bread from heaven in the Old Testament because he knew their greatest need. In the New Testament, he still provides bread from heaven to meet the greatest needs of humanity. Jesus is the bread of heaven who comes to us to dwell with us, to eat with us, to invite us to a celebration and to a feast that we can't even begin to imagine in our own minds. And the way that he makes that possible is through his own sacrifice. He is the mediator between us and God to make us righteous so that we can stand and exist in the presence of a righteous God. What does all this point to? It points to the thing that we keep saying over and over again, and I don't think there's a way that we could emphasize this enough or too often. Everything keeps pointing back to the importance of you having a relationship with God. Okay? You say, you gave that whole explanation just to bring us to something that we already knew. Yes. Why? Because you forget, and I forget. Somehow we think that our standing before God is because of who we are, what we're able to accomplish, or the good things that we've done, and our good outweighs our bad, or, or God wants to use me to further his kingdom, and I better get this right, or I'll mess up God's kingdom for eternity. And that's where we begin to think in all the wrong ways. That's just not true. God doesn't need us to further his kingdom. God allows us to be a part of furthering his kingdom. God is sovereign. His agenda is secure. He's going to do what he intends to do. He invites us along for the ride. And what he says to us is, you have the potential of this incredible benefit of knowing me and being with me and spending your life in a relationship with me. He invites us to spend time with him, to walk with him in the cool of the morning, to feast with him. He invites us to understand that he knows what our needs are and that he stands ready to provide for those needs. It's us who keep denying those things. We are the ones who keep trying to provide for ourselves. We are the ones that keep trying to earn something that we've already gotten for free. We keep making these mistakes because we don't highlight the importance of what Scripture keeps pointing to, and that is it's about being restored to a relationship with God and understanding the incredible power and significance to focusing in and centralizing ourselves around that relationship for it. Think about this for a moment. God creates us for relationships. You know why? Because God knows our deepest need is a relationship. Now, we can try and prostitute that out in so many different ways, looking for relationships with material possessions, looking for illicit relationships in society or, or in our circles or at war, whatever it may be. But the truth of it keeps coming back to this central truth. You will find your worth, your identity, and your fullness in a relationship with God and only in your relationship with God. This is something that I believe Moses discovered much later on. But as Moses was given this on the mountain, and then he journeyed with the people out there for those many years in the wilderness, seeing over and over again their betrayal and seeing them walk away and seeing this gracious God who welcomes them back, who's willing to make them right and whole again, who is faithful to his promises despite the fact that they have been anything but faithful to what they promised him. 
And Moses, as he gets to the end of his journey in the wilderness, he makes this statement in Deuteronomy, and it is profound. It is so profound that this is what Jesus quotes from when he is tempted by the enemy in the wilderness himself. Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, he's talking to the people. He says, and he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, you sit there and think your greatest need is the next loaf of bread to sustain you. But what I want to tell you is what I've learned from walking around in this wilderness with you for the last 40 years is this. You don't need bread. You need God. You need to feast on his words because if you don't feast on his words, you're going to forget what he told you. You're going to forget where you find your significance and your meaning and your identity. You're going to forget what life is all about. You're going to forget how your needs are actually met. You're going to forget his character and his goodness. You're going to forget to see your circumstances in light of who he is. And when you forget that, you have forgotten everything because now you are completely off track. Man does not live by bread alone. Bread is just the commonality that God wants to share with us as he invites us to a feast and saying, man, I've longed to eat with you. Do you remember who said that? Jesus to his 12 disciples before Passover and before being betrayed in the garden. He said, I have longed to share this meal with you. Why this meal? Because of the significance of that meal. Number one, God loves sharing a meal with us because of what meals mean and and the relationships and the commonality that we experience when we sit around a table. But also this picture of God wants to bring significance and understanding to our life. Jesus did that, didn't he? As they partook of this meal that they had eaten of ever since they were young Jewish boys... Jesus all of a sudden brought a completely different significance to the bread and a completely different significance to the wine. He says, you know, you've been eating this and it's reminded you of God's faithfulness in the past, but I want to tell you that it was actually a picture of God's faithfulness for the future. And you're going to see it in the fulfillment in these next 24 hours. You're going to see that this bread has always been a picture of me. And this wine has always been a picture of me. I am the one that is the bread from heaven. I am the one that has come down so that you can have your relationship with God restored. Moses learned it. We need to learn it. We need to feed on God's word, but we also need to feed on God's grace. God's word without God's grace is powerless because it can't change us. It just tells us who he is and and, and who we are. But God's grace in those words is what makes it possible for us to be renewed, for us to be made whole, for us to be forgiven and restored. It's God's word and God's grace that we need to feast on. Let me ask you this question. What do you need today? Whatever it is that you need, and I want you to think about that for a moment. What what is it that you think you need? Man, I, I need restoration in this relationship. I need God to provide financially for me. I need need a job. Um, I need a family. I need provision, whatever. I need healing. Whatever that is, I want you to think about this. The truth is, whatever you need, it's found in a relationship with God. And it's not found anywhere else. So even though you may have identified this need, have you committed yourself to the source of having that need met. Let me ask you this question. This is something for you to reflect on now and throughout the week. Do you crave for God to do something for you more than you crave the presence of God with you? 
Do you see what that question's asking? Do you crave to see God do something for you more than you crave the presence of God with you? The reason I say that is it's so easy for us to begin to see God like the pagan culture saw their gods, a way to get what we want. And when we find those crisis situations, our prayer life increases, and we're like, God, answer this, answer this, answer this. But what God really wants us to do is to crave his presence more than his provision. Why? Here's why. Because when you crave the presence of God, you will never doubt his provision. When you crave the presence of God, it won't even come to your mind to think, oh, I wonder if I'm going to eat today. I wonder if God's going to take care of me. I wonder if this need is going to be met. You'll never think that. Why? Because you are craving the presence of God, and it so saturates your life that that is what you are most aware of. This is why Jesus came and lived among us. He provided for us physically. He provided for us spiritually. And he is the one who keeps pointing us back to our relationship with God. I want to leave you with a couple of passages that talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of this bread. John chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the bread of presence. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The perpetual presence of bread on the table of showbread. The priests never have to worry about having something to eat in perpetuity. God's going to keep this. It's exactly what Jesus was bringing meaning to there. And look at verse 51 of John 6. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is the bread of his presence. Are you aware of it today? Are you hungering for that bread today? Let's pray. God, thank you for a word that reminds us of the truth, the truth of who we are, who you are, and what you intend for us, the truth of how we find salvation, how we find provision in this life. And Lord, I pray with what we've heard today, Holy Spirit, that you would make it meaningful congruent with our needs and our understanding. God, I pray that you would help us to embrace this truth and this wisdom in a way that it becomes foundational to how we live. And may you receive the honor and the glory that is due to you through the teaching of your word. And we ask this in the name that's above every name, Jesus Christ, our Lord.